Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books and Religion, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Lindsay Jackson. In Jewish Family, Identity and Self-Formation at Home, Alex Pomsen and Randall Schnoor examine the impact of the family on Jewish identity. Through interviewing a sample of families over a 10-year period, Pomsen and Schnoor analyze a complex web of factors that guides the level of Jewish engagement throughout a family's life course. This illuminating and nuanced study examines the complexities of Jewish identity and praxis, and more broadly, what it means to be a North American Jew in the 21st century. Alex Pompson is a researcher and managing director of Rosov Consulting. Randall Schnur is a sociologist who teaches Jewish studies at the Kochitsky Center for Jewish Studies at York University in Toronto. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Randall Schnur to hear more about this fascinating study. Hi, Randall, and welcome to the New Books Network. Oh, hi, Lindsay. Great to be here. To start us off, I'm wondering if you could describe the genesis of this project. Why did you want to study the lives of Jewish families over the course of 10 years? Well, this project started uh, with our first book, which was published in 2008, which is called Back to School, Jewish Day School and the Lives of Adult Jews. And, And this first book examined a group of downtown Jewish families many of which did not have high levels of Jewish engagement, did not belong to synagogues, and did not participate participate much in the Jewish community, but nevertheless chose a Jewish day school for their kids. And this was the downtown Jewish day school um, here in uh, Toronto. And in this interesting case, we uncovered the ways that their children's school, in many cases, brought Jewish content into the homes of these families, and especially to the parents themselves, who otherwise, as I said, were not very engaged in Jewish life. So the children entering elementary school have a great impact on the parents. And this is um, quite a different approach to a lot of research on Jewish day schools, which look at the impact on the students themselves. So when we started this current uh, book, which is really a sequel to to the first book, we thought we would look at um, the transition of students to the high school level, where the first book was looking at the transition to elementary school. We thought we would see what we could find in terms of the impact on the family when the kids transition to high school. But to be honest, after interviewing many families, I interviewed about 30 families here in Toronto at the time of the transition of their child to high school, And it wasn't terribly interesting in terms of what we were finding, in terms of interesting impacts on the family. Meanwhile, we were curious about how our original families were doing, the the ones from the first book. So I decided to interview a few of those original families, and we realized that those stories were actually quite fascinating and more interesting than our original sample. Over the 10 years since we had first met them, the Jewish lives 
of those who we had previously interviewed had moved on in remarkably diverse and often unexpected directions. And those changes called for exploration, we thought, an explanation. And we reminded ourselves that we did end the first book by thinking out loud the following idea. If the kids' participation in Jewish day schools can have such an impact on the parents and the family at large, what would happen when those kids left the Jewish day school system, as many of them did, around grade four or five or six? Some of them went to grade eight, but very few of them continued on in Jewish day school into high school. Why not devote our attention to these original families? Why not conduct a longitudinal study with the same families? After all, this is a rare opportunity and we should take advantage. So we realized or recognized that we were launching an inquiry that was no longer just about Jewish schooling, but about Jewish family life itself and its complex dynamics. So what we're doing here in this second book called Jewish Family is really taking a deep dive into the inner workings of the family. And we are exploring the drivers and mechanisms for Jewish change in families and the sociological reasons why families' Jewish lives develop in such diverse ways. So before we get to some of, the, some of your data and some of what you found, um, I'm wondering if you could describe the scope of the project. How many families in total did you folks interview? Um, how often over the 10-year period did you interview them? How did you connect with these families and so on? Uh, well, the original uh, study uh, involved uh, 24 families, uh, families that were just starting at that school, the downtown Jewish day school, and families that had been there for a few years. And we were very um, pleased that we were able to communicate or get back in touch with 16 of those families and um, were able to speak with them two or three times over the course of a decade. And um, they were happy to participate. I would go to their homes, um, usually in downtown Toronto, and... Um, interview them. Um, um, during my first interviews, originally, uh, the children were small. Uh, they would be often going to bed when I would arrive in the evenings. But as part of the idea of the book is to look at how families grow and change, and how, especially how the children are growing and affecting the family dynamics, by the latter interviews, of course, the children were teenagers, and perhaps we'll talk more about that, and uh, were active participants uh, in the interviews. And we, we wanted to see the family together um, in these conversations because you can uh, really learn a lot about a family when you uh, see the interactions uh, between uh, everyone involved. And oftentimes the interviewer um, is forgotten and left out of the conversation, and, you, and that's when you could learn a lot about what makes a family tick. So let's switch gears and talk about some of what you found by interviewing these families over a 10-year period and, and I guess, their engagement and level of engagement in Jewish life. So I'm wondering, can you tell us what factors you noticed um, tend to affect a family's level of Jewish engagement over a long period of time? Um, well, just I wanted to uh, back up a little bit uh, sure. before I do that in order to give a sense of the kind of the, the theoretical framework 
which helped us um, to look at these families. And then um, I could um, get into the factors that that show change. Sure. Okay. So in the, in the second book, some of these uh, theoretical ideas really crystallized for us. And that is, first of all, the idea of the primacy of the family. We found when people are asked to describe their lives, their Jewish lives, and where they find Jewish meaning, they rarely talk about themselves without talking about their families. When people think of themselves as Jews, they often think of themselves as mothers, fathers, sons, daughters, grandparents, etc., spouses, but not individuals. Even conversion to Judaism, which may be thought of as a very individualized decision, is often connected to the family. It is done in relation to the desires of the spouse sometimes, or the in-laws, or in one case, it was done so that the children would feel more Jewish. So we have concluded that when studying Jewish identity, it is very effective to use the family as the unit of analysis, and hence the title of the book and really the focus of the book. We feel that the family can be the arbiter and the shaper of Jewishness in very powerful ways. And this is a departure from some of the standard research in the last uh, two decades, which focused more on Jewish individuals. And of course, uh, one of the classic uh, books is by uh, Cohen and Eisen called The Jew Within, which focuses on the sovereign self, which is, of course, a, an excellent book. Um, and we are leaping off of that to um, expand the scope uh, to families. And so we've taken, again, a very distinctive family approach. Another approach that we're, we're taking the book is an approach where we, we see ide- identity as fluid and changing over the, over the life course. So what we've taken is a family life course perspective. How do families change over time? What does this mean? What did we learn? We were interested in discovering what are the drivers of change in Jewish families? those factors and circumstances that bring about some change in expression of Jewish identity. And so just going to outline briefly uh, the three main dimensions or drivers of change, which we um, observed, which really helped to explain uh, growth and change over time. And and those three dimensions are what we call uh, generational change, which are key um, moments in the life course in terms of rites of passage, Uh, bar mitzvah, uh, birth, death, marriage, divorce, death of a grandparent. Um, These are uh, standard uh, markers that researchers use. Uh, They're often looked at retrospectively. That is to say, uh, you interview a family and you tell me about the major life uh, course or rites of passage that have happened to you over the last five or ten years. And you ask them to think about it retrospectively. Uh, as I'll go on to say, our method allowed us to uh, dig deeper than that. Um, so that's the first dimension, uh, driver of change, is those key r- rites of passage. Now, the second one is what we call ontogenetic changes, which is really just the natural process of growing older. And Now, this is harder to see. This is not like a bar mitzvah that you can identify. These are the small, imperceptible, gradual changes. It's like watching your skin grow. You don't notice it after five or 10 years, 
but surely it has happened. Or it's, it's like a receding hairline that uh, what happened to my hair after five years? You don't notice it on a day-to-day basis, but you certainly notice it after uh, a long period of time. And this is the great advantage uh, that I mentioned methodologically of a longitudinal study is that you're able to follow these families over 10 years in real time, and you follow the their trajectories yourself. You don't have to rely on their versions of what had changed, because I was there five years ago. I was there eight years ago. I remember what, what was happening in your life, and it is all documented. So sometimes families would say, we have no change. Everything's the same here. But we would see that there is change. Like a child... When a child grows into an adolescent, this is changes the dynamics of the family. For example, in some cases, the child serves as inspiration and a Jewish role model for a single mother, provides, for example, deeper Jewish conversations for a parent, more of an intellectual companion. Um, rather than just bringing the challah to the Shabbat table, the child now brings complex discussions on the Middle East conflict or feminism and Judaism. Growing children allow more free time for parents. Now parents can join the ritual committee or they become a chazan, chazanit in one case. So these are what we call the ontogenetic changes that we were able to track, the natural process of growing older. And finally, the third dimension of change are those larger historical macro changes that are happening all around the world and in the Jewish world, which shape the way these families live their Jewish lives. These are also changes that a family does not necessarily notice. It's just part of the air that we breathe. And just to mention a um, couple of these larger macro changes, which have had a tremendous impact on our Jewish lives, I would mention the, the new trend for the personalization of ritual and the normalization of interfaith relationships. Maybe I'll just say a brief word on each. Um, the personalization of ritual, I think the best example are bar mitzvahs. There's really a sea change in the way that families um, are doing bar mitzvahs. They no longer necessarily rely on a rabbi or an established synagogue, but feel very comfortable designing their own ceremonies with their own uh, liturgy, and um, families take a lot of pride in um, designing things themselves, which they find much more meaningful. And of course, secondly, interfaith relationships have become much more um, normalized. Um, there used to be a time when it might be quite unusual to have a non-Jewish uh, friend at the Seder table on Passover. Uh, now, uh, this is uh, not unusual at all. In, in fact, Sometimes Jews uh, feel their Jewish pride at the highest levels when they're explaining Judaism to their non-Jewish friends. Um, and of course, in terms of uh, the hot button issue of um, intermarriage, um, it, perhaps a few decades ago, intermarriage was an expression of a desire to disengage from the community. Uh, now, that is certainly not always the case. And... Um, there are a um, number of examples that we have seen where the non-Jewish uh, spouse takes an active role in raising the Jewish family, um, some cases the primary role. So times are changing, 
and we found that there are many variables at play in interfaith families which may determine the level of Jewish engagement which may occur. Um, and if I could just say a final word about intermarriage since it's such an important issue, our research does not support the predominant view that intermarriage is necessarily a demographic tsunami, as it is often portrayed. Rather, we view it as one element of the family system, a significant element, but one single element, among others, in the ecosystem of contemporary Jewish life. This is part of the larger historical changes that we are experiencing in contemporary Jewish life. And so this, in a, in a nutshell, was a theoretical framework that we used looking at the Jewish family as a system that changes uh, through the life course, through the mechanisms of what we call generational change, ontogenetic change, and historical changes. Wonderful. Thanks. Thanks for that. Um, and so now can you maybe go into a little bit more detail about what you found um, specifically affects a family's level of Jewish engagement over the course of a long period of time? And you could, to help with this answer, you can maybe, if you would like, share some examples from of specific families that you interviewed and, um, and share those stories with us if you would like. Absolutely. Um, that is the way that we um, were able to get at this question of change is to really look at these families as case studies in themselves. We interviewed 16 families. And in one chapter, we took two families, the Wallaces and the Lombards. These are pseudonyms. Um, and we compared these two families. And interestingly, these two families experienced the same processes of ontogenetic changes. Both families, of course, experienced the same historical changes. Um, both uh, families had their children at one time at this uh, Jewish day school in downtown Toronto in terms of uh, uh, generational uh, um, changes, uh, day school being uh, an important uh, rite of passage for some families. How is it then that uh, s these two families went on two different Jewish trajectories? Um, one thing to notice between these two families, again, we call them the Wallaces and the Lombards, is that the Wallace family uh, uh, involves an intermarriage, the non-Jewish woman. So someone might just stop right there and say, well, obviously the Wallaces uh, showed a lower level of Jewish engagement over time because of the intermarriage, end of story. Well, we were able to dig in a little deeper and try to uncover some other factors which... Uh, Play, roles, uh, play a role in how families grow and change over time. For example, uh, the Wallaces um, had a father who was 50 years old when he had his son. And his, the Jewish grandmother, his mother, was 88 years old. Um, he did not have any other Jewish family members in the Toronto area. And as a result, there was really a limited extended family. The grandmother, unfortunately, passed away when the child was quite young. And um, we see a situation with um, not a lot of social support, Jewish social support. Uh, the mother has no Jewish family, as she is not Jewish. In the case of the Lombards, we see a, a close-knit, large extended family with very involved 
grandparents, four Jewish grandparents, within who infuse a lot of Jewish social and cultural capital, as we call it. So that's one factor. These are structural factors um, which uh, differentiate different families, uh, the, the amount of extended family. Another structural factor we noticed in this be- between these two families, which is sometimes not thought about, is how many children are there? In the Wallace case, the absence of grandparents nearby during most of Sam's childhood was compounded by a further structural factor, the fact that Sam Wallace was an only child. This meant that when he concluded his formal Jewish education, there were no other infusions of Jewish cultural capital into the family of the kind that might have been prompted by a younger sibling. Sources of Jewish capital, therefore, dried up at both ends of the generational chain. In the case of the other family, the Lombards, there were two children. They happened to both go through this Jewish day school system, and this, in effect, kept that air pumping in the tires longer, if you understand what I mean. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's what I call the, the some of the structural factors. We also see some interesting relational factors. Um, there is a, a scholar by the name of David Olson at the University of Minnesota um, who identifies different dimensions or different uh, types of family relationships. He talks about uh, cohesion and adaptability. And we see in these two families, for example, the Wallaces and the Lombards, a different level of cohesion and a different level of adaptability. Um, the Wallace family, um, the mother, father, and son seem to be all go- going in different directions. The, uh, the mother is um, highly invested in her own religious and spiritual exploration. Uh, the father prefers to do his own thing. He's been turned off by religion in his early part of his life. Um, he is uh, not terribly interested in bringing more to the family. And secondly, uh, the father um, is quite rigid uh, about his worldview and is unlikely that he's willing to change in his late middle age um, to provide more uh, for his son. He shows a certain rigidity rather than a curiosity. And I contrast this finally to the Lombard family in terms of this issue of the cohesiveness of a family, the level of adaptability of a family system. Um, Because in the Lombard family, we see a movement in the other direction. There is a thick web of relational threads connecting their continually growing interest in Jewish ideas. There is high level of cohesion. There is a holistic, mutually enriching quality to the relationships of different members of the family with one another, especially in relation to Jewish matters. As one member of the family grows, so it stimulates the growth of others. Personal development is not an independently undertaken project and is not limited by predetermined boundaries. That is the mark of adaptability. And so these are not necessarily the only factors by any means, but some of the structural and relational factors we found when you dig deeper into families so that there are many balls um, in the air at the same time. 
you know, this is not an exact science. Uh, these things cannot be measured empirically um, in a precise way. But to say that intermarriage is the only factor and that explains everything, I think is missing a lot of the uh, details found in families. Um, your answer just now is a, provides a really nice segue for a question about social capital and j- cultural capital. And you and, you and um, Alex Pomson talk about this throughout the book. Um, and you just alluded to this a little bit, but I'm wondering if we could sort of flesh this out a little bit more. Can you define these terms and describe what impact they have on um, one's level of Jewish engagement? Uh, yes, uh, that's a good idea, because I did mention these terms, what we call uh, Jewish social and cultural capital. These are really conceptual constructs that we have found helpful to illuminate our our work. And these are um, concepts that are derived from the work of Pierre Bourdieu and Robert Putnam. Putnam describes, for example, social capital as the social networks among individuals and the norms of reciprocity and trustworthiness that arise from them. We can thus think of Jewish social capital as the extent to which an individual has an array of Jewish family connections, friendship networks, professional associations with other Jews. Individuals with high levels of Jewish social capital tend to live in geographic areas with high levels of Jewish residential concentration and spend the majority of their personal and professional lives within Jewish orbits. And secondly, cultural capital, um, as defined by Bourdieu, refers to the forms of knowledge and skill and education and any cultural advantage people may have that may afford them a higher status in society. So uh, building on that, we developed the concept of Jewish cultural capital that refers to the extent to which an individual has knowledge of or competence in aspects of Jewish, secular, or religious practice. Examples of this could include a long history of regular synagogue attendance, extensive formal Jewish education, high levels of Jewish cultural socialization through, for example, Jewish summer camps, um, or fluency in Hebrew or Hebraic culture, spending time in Israel, So by classifying our families in relation to these two constructs, it helped us, um, Lindsay, to lay the baseline in relation to which we can start to chart subsequent changes in the family's lives. Um, These were Jewish day school parents, so one might make the assumption they must have high uh, Jewish social capital and high Jewish cultural capital. Uh, This wasn't always the case, since this was an eclectic downtown Jewish school, as I mentioned at the outset, uh, where families did not necessarily have high levels of Jewish engagement. Um, uh, And it was interesting to see that uh, some of these families were quite low in this capital and were able to accumulate it um, as they went along. It was interesting to see that in many cases, Uh, having Jewish social capital was um, more advantageous to um, uh, uh, forming more and more relationships and getting more engaged with Judaism 
And sometimes that could be more advantageous than having uh, the cultural capital, but not having that network of friends and family uh, to help reinforce a Jewish life. So I'm wondering if we can switch gears and talk a little bit about ritual. Um, you have a whole chapter where you talk about a family's sort of ritual engagement and how this changes over time in a way that reflects the changes that take place in a family. So I'm wondering if you can elaborate on what we can learn about families through an analysis of a family's home-based ritual traditions. Absolutely. This is really the third uh, major theme of the work. If the two first themes are the family as a, as a system and uh, the importance of life course and looking at how things change over time. The third major theme that we are tackling here is the importance of the home and in particular uh, family home-based rituals. Uh, you know, with the decline of synagogue attendance, which is, which is well-documented, and other public displays of Jewishness, we really see the importance of privatized home-based family rituals, which are conducted away from public scrutiny and are often self-created, customized, and idiosyncratic. We see these types of rituals as being very important for uh, developing family, Jewish family identity. If you think about why is Passover probably much more popular for Jewish families to celebrate in their homes compared to something like Shavuot? And I think the answer is because of the elaborate home family ritual, which is associated with uh, Passover. I think the potential, for example, of the magic of the Passover Seder is, is that you're not just getting family together for a holiday or for fun. But these rituals are often highly structured. It's really an embodiment of the family itself, we argue. The personality of the family, the style of the family, the sense of humor of the family. I know that personally, our Passover seders are very uh, important to us to design in a way that we think are fun and meaningful and lots of uh, shtick for the kids, and it's really a highlight of the year uh, for the children. Uh, and I think that families feel empowered by the relative freedom and creative license that these holidays grant them to celebrate with in their own home, in their own way, and to truly make it their own. And so we argue that family rituals are really serve as a window into the family's underlying shared identity. The performance of the ritual helps to reinforce family bonds. It says, this is who we are as a family. And as Jewish ritual is intricately intertwined with this family process, it says, this is who we are as a Jewish family. And if you think about, by expressing who the family is, ritual, therefore, to connect it to some themes that I've been speaking about, ritual can therefore serve as a useful indicator of the changes happening in the family, of the ontogenetic changes, for example, the natural growth uh, of the family members over time. 
For example, changes in the form and content of family ritual can indicate deep-seated changes in the family over time. But the question is, and this goes back to adaptability that I mentioned before, can a family show enough adaptability to their rituals so that they remain meaningful to, for example, to teenage children? Or will the ritual become stale and lose its meaning and its impacts? So can the family find ways to adapt? So one of the famous stories, and I'll, and I'll end with this story for this question, is uh, one of the families called the Richards family um, described in great detail uh, the important ritual that they do at Rosh Hashanah instead of going to synagogue, which they found to be uh, lacking any meaning, they would go to the apple orchard. And not only that, they would take their non-Jewish uh, neighbor who they're very close with. And they would describe to us how meaningful it was for them to spend that time together in the, with the family um, offering uh, apologies to each other and reflecting on their year together while sitting on the grass uh, in the apple orchard under the trees. It sounds very beautiful. And Alex and I talked to our students about this uh, as an example of uh, new ways to make meaning that are, you know, which represents a new trend, a personalization of ritual and uh, an alternative to the synagogue. And uh, the question that uh, we were left with after this dramatic story is what is going to happen over time, over five or 10 years, uh, will this ritual uh, retain its meaning? Uh, Because it sounds so beautiful. And uh, the answer is a bit of a mixed uh, mixed answer. Uh, To some extent, it it, uh, retained its meaning. Uh, It did change into a a trip to the strawberry fields uh, for a few years after the apple orchard. And then it ended up, as they called it, a, a powwow in the backyard where they would read poetry. Um, but to be honest, after a while, some of the teenage children, they're now teenagers, they're not little children anymore, had uh, too much homework or didn't want to miss classes and uh, didn't always attend. Uh, the ritual anymore, and it did it did dissipate to a certain extent. So it, it was a very interesting observation. Uh, ritual is so powerful. Um, home ritual can be a very meaningful replacement to the synagogue and other public places, uh, but can one adapt? Can it remain meaningful over time? So this. Uh, this is one of our favorite uh, examples of ritual. I was also particularly intrigued by the role ritual assumed in some single parent families in your sample. And I remember a particular um, mother-daughter dynamic you examined in this in the chapter. So I'm wondering if you could elaborate. You don't have to talk about their story necessarily, but just the role ritual assumed in, um, in single parent families that you studied. Uh, yes, there were, there were, I believe, three single mothers with, uh, uh, with daughters, I think, in most cases. And, and this pattern of home-based family ritual binding together members of the family was, in many cases, most vivid among the single-parent families in our sample. In these instances, ritual didn't just hold the family together. It enabled the, the child... In this case, a single child and the parent, 
to create their own distinct family cultures, really just the two of them. And they were together forging this um, powerful uh, Jewish moment uh, through ritual in the home. In one case, a Jewish woman became quite disengaged with Jewish culture when she was an adolescent uh, due to her parents' divorce. This might have been the story you were thinking about. It's quite a powerful story. And as a single mother, this particular woman comes back to her love of Judaism through her daughter, her one child. And we describe in the book at length the somewhat dramatic Jewish journey taken by the mother alongside and to some extent inspired by her daughter. Her daughter's now an adolescent. The home-based family ritual fueled that journey by reinforcing those positive Jewish feelings that the mother was missing from her own adolescence and the daughter's role as an active agent in those home rituals, uh, lighting the Shabbat candles, um, reciting the Kaddish, uh, the Kaddish over the, um, over the wine certainly enriched the Jewish culture of their home. So yes, indeed, uh, for single mothers, it can be, single parents can be quite uh, powerful. So this provides a really great segue. This story provides a great segue to our co- a conversation about kin keepers. Um, and you mentioned in the book that previous scholarship has demonstrated that it is almost always women between the ages of 40 and 59 who are the kin keepers um, in their families. But as you just sort of demonstrated with this, um, with the example you just talked about, um, your research sort of highlights the role of teenagers and children in kin keeping as well. So I'm wondering, can we unpack that, even though you just sort of talked about it a little bit, can we unpack that a little bit more? Absolutely. Um, so... Our analysis of the function of ritual reveals, again, an aspect of how ritual comes to perform this important work of binding a family together through the agency of what scholars have sometimes called, and as you just said, kin keepers. And a kin keeper, researchers have suggested, is a family member who assumes the responsibility for maintaining those kinship ties and organizing family gatherings. And typically, as you said, this role is played by the woman, often uh, in the middle uh, generation, uh, between the grandparents' age and the children's age. So these women often tend to be in their 40s or 50s, as you mentioned. Uh, Before this age, the woman's mother often takes the leading role. After this age, the woman is often ready to pass on the responsibility to the next generation. So yes, this is an emphatically gendered family system. It is less likely in general that men will step up to perform this role. And in our small sample, uh, we certainly uh, have evidence to support that, that it is um, very often the woman and uh, not as often the man. But while this literature on the kinkeeper phenomenon emphasizes how ontogenetic change, the process of aging, accounts for changes in which family member performs this role, our data point to an additional dynamic, and that is the changing cultural competence of particular family members. And this gets to what you're asking about 
uh, teenagers. In these situations, it is not only middle-aged individuals who play the role of kinkeeper, but it can be teens or young adults too, if they possess, in some cases, greater cultural competence than other members of the family. So in conventional sociological accounts, the kinkeeper is viewed as drawing on extensive resources of Jewish social capital, which we discussed earlier, in order to hold the family together. She binds the generations through her ability to bring people together in a social sense. In a few of these families, it seems that the teenage daughters have taken on this kinkeeper role. However, in this case, the influence derives from a different resource, from her possession of relatively rich cultural capital compared to other members of the family. And this seems to account for the role teenagers have taken on in their home as the family member capable of making the blessing on the wine or the grace after the meals, leading Passover seders. As Jewish daily school graduates, some of these teenagers have acquired more cultural literacy than their parents and thus are better able to perform these roles. Um, towards the end of your book, of the, towards the end of the book, you um, I examine the differences and similarities between the Jewishness of um, teens and their parents, which I found was particularly interesting. Um, and you mentioned that there tends to be an assumption that teens are rebellious against their parents and in many cases reject their parents' practices and traditions. But your data suggests something quite different. Um, would you be able to elaborate on that? Yes, we were very um, excited to to collect all these data on teenagers because there isn't a lot of it um, in the literature. Um, And um, we were able to develop some interesting ideas about teens. We found that when teens talk about their Jewishness, uh, they talk about it in ways that are actually um, quite similar uh, to their parents. They often say things that one could have imagined their parents saying. One family had a certain tone of humanism in their remarks, and we found the same uh, in their children. Another family demonstrated more of an intellectual post-denominationalism, so to speak. And we found the children picking up on those vibes very much as well. So despite the common belief that teenagers rebel against their parents, there is significant research to suggest that many uh, North American teenagers tend to be quite similar to their parents when it comes to uh, Jewish expression. However, if, if these young people resemble their parents, we believe that there is an authenticity to this resemblance. So much so that in some instances, the teens seem to express views that reflect a more honest rendering of the ideas that their parents express. For example, in one family, both parents express disappointment that their children know less about Jewish culture and feel less committed to Jewish particularism than they do. But if we look closely at John, the father, we learn that he himself has a lot of ambivalences about Judaism, but he admits that he suppresses these ambivalences out of respect, perhaps, for his father, an observant Holocaust survivor. But his daughter, Melanie, does not share his ambivalences or his regrets. 
she sees her preference to lead a more assimilated life as a direct consequence of how she was raised. Her religious skepticism is an outcome of the very questions and doubts she heard from her own parents. She expresses, therefore, without compromise and hesitation, many of the same ambivalences that her parents feel. Um, one of the other things I loved throughout the book was reading excerpts from the interviews. And I found them particularly rich because the vast majority of the interviews that you shared, or uh, many of the interviews that you shared, were actually interviews with more than one person. So whether that was a couple or a father-daughter or father-son, whatever kind of thing. And that was it, was, it's a, it provides a really rich place for analysis, at least I find, um, when you do, when you conduct interviews together. Um, but I'm just wondering if you can maybe elaborate on um, why you chose to interview folks together as opposed to individually and what, what, what that allowed you to sort of learn about the family through these group or family interviews. Um, well, there, there is an idea out there that the, the best way to interview someone, especially a teenager, is to speak to them alone so that their views are not... Uh, um, influenced or overtaken by by the um, views of the parents. Um, now this can happen, but given the uh, the framework of how we're looking at the family as a family system, uh, we found that, uh, as I mentioned earlier, the best way to to study families is to, is to try to get them together. And this is not dissimilar to family therapy and the type of theoretical. Uh, uh, framework that we're thinking within is not dissimilar to how family therapy works, where uh, one family member's uh, behaviors um, affect and implicate uh, others. Um, now, these were very articulate uh, teenagers in many cases. And while there were some cases where uh, the parents wanted to uh, speak uh, for their teenagers, uh, uh, in many cases, in most cases, the teenagers were very happy uh, uh, to speak for themselves. Um, and it's in these um, uh, intense conversations, uh, again, as I mentioned, the interviewer uh, often falls uh, to the side. Uh, I remember conversations uh, in particular about uh, uh, marriage uh, uh uh, marriage partners, uh, where, where uh, a child would say, uh, do, you, do you have a preference of who I marry? And the parent would say, well, I have a preference, uh, but I'm not going to force anything. And the child would say, well, why would you have a preference? You know, uh, isn't that being a little uh, too uh, particularistic? Aren't we open to uh, everyone in the society? And these conversations would reveal the tensions uh, between parents and children in terms of the, uh, the change of generations. Although there were uh, a handful of intermarried families among the parents' generation, uh, the attitudes that came out of these uh, family uh, interviews about the child's um, attitudes towards um, uh, intermarriage were, were quite instructive. Um, maybe I'll just uh, spend another minute or two to elaborate on that. And that is to say that uh, almost uh, in every case, the children would, would say that 
whether or not they would marry a Jewish person is uh, completely up in the air. Uh, it would be a bonus, many of them said, but certainly not a requirement. And when asked uh, whether to what extent it's important for them to raise Jewish children, it was fascinating to hear that almost all of them wanted to and planned to raise Jewish children, whether or not their spouse was Jewish. Uh, this uh, concerned the parents. And we see here, uh, in the case of the children, a generation for whom the categories of universalism and particularism are no longer incompatible. They want to have particularism in terms of Jewish children, but are open to universalism in terms of uh, their partners. And some might say they want to have their cake and eat it too. Uh, Time will tell how this may play out. Um, So you conclude the book by sharing some methodological considerations and concerns you had regarding the study. Would you be able to share some of those with us? Um, One of the methodological um, issues, which I think is important to think about, would be the question, what can you really learn, for example, from a sample size of only 16 families in a qualitative manner? And... um, while we are aware that our understanding would certainly be sharpened further and our theorizing made more reliable if our sample included 116 families rather than 16 families, but we are also encouraged by how through paying close attention to these particular stories and to how those stories have been told and retold over an extended period of time, we have been able to discern the ways in which homemade family cultures actually operate. And this, what we would call more of a case study methodology, we believe has a humanizing effect on the study of Jewish lives. Quantitative studies of hundreds or thousands of individuals, especially studies with retrospective designs that associate outcomes today with factors from the past, tend to objectify the lives of human subjects. Such studies are constructed to identify the influence of a particular variable or interventions on the way things have turned out in the present. So if you think about, for example, the famous Pew Research study on the Jews from 2013, we have a claim that the survey finds a strong association between secular Jews and intermarriage. A strong association, it says. And these are robust conclusions, indeed, from the Pew Report, based on the analysis of over 3,000 individuals. Yet, even if unintentionally, this kind of report tends to reify these outcomes as inevitable. They do not help account for the trajectories that individuals lives take, or to be precise, the the specific and often idiosyncratic reasons why a particular interfaith family, for example, chooses to raise its children as practicing religious Jews, and another does not. So I think to this point, I've been able to illustrate to some extent that there are many factors involved, and uh, 
we hope that our study was able to uncover uh, more than uh, we originally were thinking about. So I have a couple more questions for you as we're approaching the end of the interview. And I just want to sort of wrap up by asking a broad question that will sort of encompass some of the things you've already talked about throughout um, the last 50 minutes that we've been chatting. Um, So just to wrap up, what can we learn about contemporary Jewry by using the family as a unit of analysis? Well, again, when our interviewees talked about themselves as Jews, and I said this at the beginning of our conversation, they conceived of themselves as mothers, sons, daughters, fathers. Family, as I have noted, provided both the context and the content for who they were as Jews. Their Jewish lives were strongly centered within home-based family rituals, as we talked about. It was these encounters in the field that encouraged us to turn to a life course perspective and to family systems theory. This was not a case of going in oh, let's use this theory. It was the data speaking to us, and it was Alex and I trying to find uh, theoretical uh, frameworks which will best understand the data that we were uncovering in these interviews. And the study has convinced us that the time is ripe to re-engage with the family as the unit of analysis. At a historical moment when in most Western democracies, both public institutions and private religious institutions are struggling to draw together communities of like-minded individuals. But family is one of the very few social institutions in which people do continue to find meaning and purpose for non-transactional reasons. As at such a moment, it seems especially urgent to us to understand the continued valence of the Jewish family as an institution in people's lives. Its significance may be greater than ever. These conclusions in our experiences over the last 10 years prompt us really to propose a new direction to our fellow fellow scholars and researchers for the study of contemporary Jewry. We suggest It is time to reclaim the family as unit of analysis, to position it within a multi-generational life course context, and to employ a qualitative research sensibility. We really encourage other scholars to join us in this new interdisciplinary approach, which we believe is a very valuable way within which to conduct the study of Jewish lives. Um, to end on a broad note, my final question for you is, um, what are you working on now? Well, right now I'm working on something a little bit different. It's uh, more of a demographic uh, Jewish research project. Um, here in Canada, we have uh, just conducted a survey of the Jews of Canada. The survey was conducted in 2018. And with a colleague of mine at the University of Toronto, Professor Robert Grimm, we are putting together a volume of articles which will analyze uh, the data from this survey. And I think one of the things that really excites me about this new book project is that we are incorporating a um, comparative approach 
which I think uh, we need to build up in Canadian Jewish studies. Uh, for example, we have a chapter comparing Canadian Jews to Australian Jews. I've contacted a colleague in uh, Melbourne. We are, have a chapter comparing Canadian Jews to South African Jews. I've spoken to a, a colleague in Cape Town. Um, we have another chapter which can, compares uh, Canadian Jews to Canadian Muslims, which is another interest of mine. And in, in my teaching at York University, I've been um, teaching more about uh, the Canadian Muslim community in addition and in comparison uh, to the Canadian Jewish community. Uh, we're looking, uh, we have a chapter on comparing Canadian Jews to Indigenous Canadians. So uh, this is a, a book that uh, I'm very excited about, that uh, we already have quite a uh, all-star cast of uh, scholars who've agreed to, to write for us. Well, that sounds excellent. When do you expect the, this volume to come out? Uh, well, we're in early stages, so we're, we're trying to give people lots of lead time. So uh, we're looking at uh, probably 2023 for, for publication. Sounds great. Well, thank you, Randall, for joining us today. It's been an absolute pleasure reading your work and, and talking to you um, about it today. Um, the book, Jewish Family, Identity and Self-Formation at Home, is out now. Thank you very much, Lindsay. It was a pleasure to speak to you. <laughs>